Hey everybody, my name is Benoit and I'm a member of Al-Anon. Hi, Hi y'all. I certainly want to thank the committee for inviting me and, and uh, Judy. God bless her heart. <laughs> I uh, listen to her whine a lot. <laughs> she started whining about all the speakers changing and switching and some canceled and she was out scrambling and she didn't know what to do with this and that and the other. And I guess this was Thursday afternoon. And I said, well, you're lucky that I'm okay. I've just been sick for several days, but I'm fine. And uh, about... An hour later, y'all know what the Green Apple Quick Steps, I know you do. Uh, y'all know what Green Apple Quick Steps is? Um, it's when you don't know whether to sit on the pot or puke in the pot, you know. And I had that hit me. And I called Judy and I said, you know, I am really sick and there's no way I can get on that plane in the morning and I am really, really sorry. And I could just hear this. <laughs> and I told her to call me, and I'd, you know, I'd see if I could get, you know, get myself together. There's about 30 of us went up to Lake Arrowhead up in the mountains in California last weekend, and we come down that hill, and people just started falling off right and left. There were six of us that I know of as of Tuesday that had this stuff, so somebody was a carrier, and I really want to know who it was, I'll tell you. <laughs> I sat in there about 2 a.m., I guess it would be Friday morning. And I had the trash can in front of me, and I was sitting on the commode. And I was, you know, this you know, thought came to me. You know, I hear alcoholics talking about this, doing this all the time. <laughs> and after what I went through for three days, I mean, I'll kill the person who did. I can't even imagine going out the next night and doing it all over again. That's sick. I mean, jeez, you know what's causing it, and you go do it again. I, I just kept thinking, boy, that's so sick. <laughs> and, it, and it, you know, sponsorship is a good thing, uh, as she was mentioning, because I called my sponsor yesterday morning and and I was whining to her about what was going on, and that I was feeling better, but you know, not 100%. Blah blah blah, and, and the trouble that Judy been through, and what was going on, and. She gets real quiet, as she can do from time to time. And I knew she's thinking. And, and she said, well, if I was you, maybe I'd just try to kind of push myself a little and see if you can't go on. Because if you stay at home, uh, you'll probably get to feeling better tomorrow and you'll go have fun. Then you'll feel guilty. <laughs> so I pushed myself on the plane at midnight last night. And I took the red eye here, so I haven't had much sleep. Now, this is a sad story. I want you all to know. Uh, I hadn't slept in three or four days because of the green apple quick steps and uh, no sleep last night. And I think I'm really pitiful. I did a, a great job staying awake for everybody today. I mean, y'all were so interesting that I really wanted to see how sick y'all were and how it was going to turn out. <laughs> but I do thank you for having me. I think it's a, I really and truly consider it an honor. I mean, really and truly, it's an honor. And as the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, and I'm a student of it, it is a privilege to stand at this podium. I consider it holy ground. I truly do. I think what goes on up here has nothing to do with me or any of these other speakers. I know some of them very well, and they're just not that smart, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
and something happens up here that just is really incredible. So as myself personally, I really want to thank you for inviting me. And as an Al-Anon, I really want to thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, for sharing your podium with us. Um, it's mighty important to me. If you have trouble remembering my name, my husband said, if you'll take the V away and remember annoy, <laughs> and I remind those who think that's so cute that he's dead now. <laughs> He better hide out. <laughs> I came into this magnificent fellowship of ours February the 7th of 1969 in Lubbock, Texas. My home group for many, many years was the central group. My home group now is the stepped-up group. Mondays and Thursday nights, we're right by LAX. So if you ever fly into Los Angeles, let me know, and I'll scoop you up and take you to our meeting. My committed open AA meeting is on Wednesday nights at Pacific Group. And I'm at those three nights all the time. You can catch me there. And I, another old Texas saying, Polly will know this, maybe one or two of you. You know, I feel right now just like as important as tits on a boar hog. <laughs> I mean, would any of y'all like to trade places with me after you've heard all these magnificent speakers all day? I mean, what am I going to say? I mean, it's all been said. I feel very lame up against most of them. I mean, and, and Jennifer, God, if you didn't hear, hear that Alateen speaker, if you can ever get a tape from those losers over there. Uh, <laughs> she was magnificent. I mean, she just made my pitiful trip worth it just to hear that young lady. What a, what a message she had. And I know all these speakers, and they just, they outbid themselves. I, uh, I'm part Indian. Uh, my dad is from Oklahoma, Choctaw Indians, and um, he was uneducated. A wonderful, quiet, quiet man. He just held his head down and just walked. He was just, a, he just walked life. He married my mother who came from um, the Southern Baptist. My grandmother was a Methodist dropout, so she was even, you know, she was just, her whole family just turned their back on my grandmother because she quit going to Methodist and went to them. And um, plus she had a habit of marrying alcoholics. And I did not know this until just a few years ago. I finally put it together. You know, it's like, duh. She was married three times and they were all alcoholics. And if you know, I mean, way back then, they did not get divorces. I mean, it just wasn't done. So my mother came uh, from a divorced family, and she was full of shame and never held her head up either. And they met and married and had uh, three brothers and myself, and they were just good, hardworking Texas people. You know, they're just good people. And when I was a little girl, my oldest brother broke his neck. We were in Oklahoma on a vacation and it left him paralyzed and it broke my father. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal had a, on the front of it, bottom of the page, a picture of my brother in his hospital bed. And it says, 
My dad was standing for the bed and it said, uh, Father swallows pride and asks for help. And so we were getting donations from people all over Lubbock County. They, we didn't have insurance. I don't even know if there's insurance back there. I guess it was. But I sound like I'm really old, don't I? <laughs> and we were getting all this money from just good people. And then I put my head down because it was like, we're different and, and we're charity people and we have to take from other people. And, and we were all kind of, everybody in my family was uneducated and uh, it, was, it was just, you were just different. And I was full of shame and, and uh, low, low self-worth as they say. And I just kept to myself and kept real quiet and my house was not a fun place. My, my brother... God love his heart. He just smelled bad. He had rotting flesh. There wasn't these striker frames, and and he lay there and just had rotting flesh. And the medicine that they put on that smelled worse than the rotting flesh. And the things that he had to do, his other body functions, just smelled really bad. The house just reeked of it. And so I never had anybody at my house. I stayed out in the streets all the time. Never came home unless it was absolutely necessary. And I started running around with the older crowd probably 10, 11, 12, something like that. And they had magazines and stuff, and they'd show me things that was really, life was really exciting out there. And um, there was a Life magazine, and it had a picture of dances and stuff. And it, I was just enthralled with it. I just, I just wanted to go where that was. It just looked magical to me. And then when I got up a little older, one of the older girls, I think she was 17 or 18, took me to um, my first honky-tonk. It was a cotton club. Met a guy, Jim, uh, Mary's husband, has been to the Cock Club uh, in Lubbock, Texas. And uh, one of the first people I saw out there was Elvis Presley. And my friend's name was Sandra. And uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. But uh, <laughs> Sandra went up to Elvis, and I was standing beside her. And, I mean, she was uh, pretty snockered, I imagine, because she just... Uh, and I don't mean to be disrespectful of the crowd or anything, but she just pulled out her her breast and had him sign his name on her breast. And I thought that was the coolest thing. <laughs> I mean, just yank that thing out and say, here, just stuck up there and say, here, sign it. And uh, she's still written up. Uh, <laughs> if there's anything about Elvis, it's I was in Graceland just a while back, and they had a little article in the paper about Sandra. <laughs> I was there. It was just very touching. Uh, one of the things that I learned at those honky tonks, you know, I'm a fast learner, and I watch and see what happens, and I don't make a move till I know what you're supposed to be doing. I'm a manipulator, and I'm a controller, and I, I have to know best. I have this strong need to, to know best, and and change things. If you'll notice, I moved the table. It just drove me crazy all day long. The, the table was way over there, and, you know, you couldn't get your water, and I just couldn't wait to get up here to change the whole podium, you know. <laughs> I do. I <laughs> says she always does that. I do. I mean, I want it convenient for me. And y'all, most times, don't know how to do it. And uh... <laughs> Polly referred to alcoholism today. And the isms uh, is what make up an alcoholic, I understand. And I've been a student of Clancy for ever since I walked in. He was my husband's sponsor. And 
And I, he and I have gotten to arguments about Alanon-isms and alcoholisms. And my great-great-grandsponsor made a list one time of Alanon-isms, if you will. And part of that is control and manipulation and the need to be right and the blame and the complain and the martyr. Don't cover his ears up. Look at her. <laughs> what are you doing, girl? <laughs> listen, listen. And I just eat up with all of them. I, I truly am. And, and I got out this honky-tonk, and I was watching what happens. And this, is, this will describe every honky-tonk I've ever been in. All the gals stay on this side of the room, and all the guys stay on this side of the room at the bar. And the music's going. It's pretty lame. You know, it's about 11-ish. And at 11-ish, the guys over here are getting pretty happy and kind of loose. And uh, they'll start swaggering. I love alcoholic swaggers. I mean, they just can swagger, you know. Just... <laughs> you know, dance, babe, you know. It's like... Jim Williams used to say that if you lined up ten pretty girls against the wall, that he would pick the sickest one every time. And I told Jim one time, you haven't figured it out yet, son. The sickest of that ten takes one step forward. You never picked them at all. We just let you think that you picked them. Because I'm studying the bar. And, you know, I love bars. I love AA meetings. My AA meeting, committed AA meeting, there's 1,200 people there every Wednesday night. Many of you have been there. And they'll say, are there any alcoholics in the room? And every time they do that, I'm just, oh. I'm just like, oh. I mean, I love alcoholics. I just love them. I mean, just, man, there's just something about them. And so I've already picked out the one that I think is the cutest and the most, can swagger the best and the best dancer. And so I've already picked him up. So about 11-ish, uh, as he comes over with his little swagger, I'm moving a little bit forward, giving that look. What did, who was it that's saying, snagger, snagging? Oh, honey, I'm a snagger from way back. <laughs> And then you dance a little while, and then you've got to be really quick at closing time. I mean, that last dance. God, that last dance. In Texas, they play, and especially the ones I went to, I wound up in a place called the Bloody Bucket. And it's, uh, Jim was there, and he said, I remember going to this one place that they, they pad you down before you come in. I said, yeah, that's the Bloody Bucket. <laughs> and they would play Sleepwalk. And it's a musical. It's a guitar musical, steel guitar. And it just vibrates your whole soul. I mean, it is just so magnificent. I just get cold chills thinking about it. It just, oh, man. It goes, if I can do this. I've been sick, you know. Doesn't that just get to you? I mean, <laughs> and I got my hymn of the night picked out, and I'm really quick at that last song, and I got it. And we're out there dancing, and I mean, you couldn't put a human hair in between our bodies. I mean, we are clutched up, you know. And that song's going on, and all of a sudden he gets right here, just right here in this ear, and he's saying the magic words to me. 
I mean, they're magic. They fix me. I fill up. I'm a different human being. I heard a speaker from a AA say this AA party one time, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. He's talking about what filled him up was a drink, that he felt useless and worthless. He had no self-worth. He took his drink, and it came down, and it went boom. And then it comes back up, and it fills his shoulder up with muscles, and his arms pop out, and just feel like a man. He could just go do anything. And he just swelled up, and he was saying it. And I thought, I identify with that. I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly the first time I ever felt it and how I felt many years after that. It's at that magical moment when they're right here and they're nibbling. (laughs) And he says, Sugar, I need you. (laughs) Yes! Yes! (laughs) Oh, man. I'm full. I'm whole. I am beauty. I am woman. I am everything that you can dream of. At that moment, he is mine. And I'm going to give him the wonders of the world. He is going to be so happy. And I take him to my house and I do everything I heard the big girls do. You see, he's going to be it. He's going to fix me. And there's nothing as slippery as an alcoholic the morning after. I mean, they're so slippery. (laughs) And I know I'm already, man, I am on my way skidding down to hell. Because I sat in that same church that Polly did and that same preacher banging on that table, screaming, these veins popping, his red saying, sin, 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 and... And I knew I was, I was doomed. But, it, you know, it just didn't seem that darn bad. <laughs> so I go back out the honky-tonk again. And I know exactly what an alcoholic means when they say, tonight I'm just going to go out to the bar and have a couple of drinks, and then I'm going to go home to my family. I'm just going to have a couple of beers. I know exactly what they're talking about, and then they wind up, you know, gone for days. Because I said the same thing to myself. Tonight, I'm just going to go out there and dance. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to pick up anybody. Nobody's coming home with me. I'm not going home with anybody. I have got to straighten my life out. This is bad. I am going to hell. And I've got to stop this. And it would come, and I just couldn't leave. I mean, I just couldn't leave. There was this big, giant hole in my soul and in my gut. And it would come closing time, and then I'd be filled up and round, round, round. What, it, I just turned out to be a slut puppy hoe. <laughs> I tore my dignity a little strip at a time and you know, just gave it away. I used to think I was such a victim until I got here and heard that there are no victims, they're volunteers. And I, I did it to myself. There's a line in the big book that just popped in there not too long ago. I don't know when they stuck it in there, but it said <laughs> that we are self-imposed, our own self-imposed crisis. And I thought, you know, that's right. Everything I ever did was self-imposed. There is no blame. There is just no blame. I was as goofy and sick as you can possibly make them. And my sponsor said, you know, you can't blame any alcoholic. You were a squirrel always looking for a tree to climb up. You just were. And I've had... Uh, Three major alcoholics and a bunch of minor ones in between. And uh, I just, they just do something for me. I mean, 
I can't imagine. I dated this one time, this guy. He was normal. And I'm telling you, it was the most boring couple of dates I've ever had in my life. And they came on time. Had a rose. Took me out to eat. They paid for it. We went to a movie. He held my hand. Took me home. Walked me to the door. Kissed me on the cheek. and Said he'd call me. And he did. Now, what's the fun in that? I mean, there's no challenge whatsoever. <laughs> My first major alcoholic, I found out the bloody bucket, and, and he was a gangster, gambler. He was a professional gambler and a bootlegger. That's how he made his living. And I didn't realize, I truly didn't realize how I had slowly slipped and slipped and slipped and slipped till the people that I was around, most people would not be around. Most... Um, and I don't want to say decent people. That's what they called them back then. You know, decent people wouldn't be with these people. And that's where I, I wound up and felt very comfortable with these people. They were uh, shop, they call them boosters. They were shoplifters and pimps and prostitutes, gamblers, uh, bootleggers, uh, just whatever you can imagine they were there. And then there was me. And I just always thought I was so much better than they were. God love them. And I had... Uh, you know, I could share with them from time to time. And, and I, I just I just fit there. I just fit there for some reason or another. Now, I drank. I'm like Mary. I drank too. But I do not have the allergy to the body. A lot of the isms I have that are like alcoholics, as far as I can tell, except the depth of them. My daughter says, it's like this, Mom. When you have a flat tire, you call AAA. When I have a flat tire, I have to call suicide prevention. And that's, that makes sense to me because that's what I do. And she just goes bonkers. When I say I'm fear, an alcoholic, as far as I can tell, is in stark terror. So we have the same emotions, but it's like, again, just my observation from the crazy kids I've got. Their, uh, their nerves are like they lay on top of the skin. Mine are buried with this cable about four inches deep inside my body so that you can't touch my nerves, my emotions, my feelings, and theirs are out here. So I think that's the, the difference along with the allergy. So I drank for a long time, and, and this guy was just nuts. I mean, he was crazy. And there was guns around the house and shot off, shot at people. He shot at me. He pistol whipped me. He threw me in and out of moving cars. I mean, we just fought all the time, and it was, just, it was pitiful. Uh, I learned after I got here maybe to try to keep my mouth shut. Was, what a concept. I never even thought about it you have to get their attention and you have to explain things when they're not doing right. You know, and they explain to you. And uh, I moved in with this man. I became pregnant by this man, unmarried. It never occurred to me to say to him, let's get married and give this child a decent start in life. It never even occurred to me to do that. Because at this time in my life, I knew I was a piece of garbage and not anybody was going to, you know, put up with that. Uh, and so I, I never even considered asking him. I had, uh, he took care of me until I had my daughter. And then he told me in the hospital that he had done all he was going to do and that uh, I would have to make my own way now. And he'd give me a couple hundred dollars to get started. And he walked out. And one of the other isms of an Al Anon is called <laughs> vindictiveness. I don't particularly like that word. I think it, it better a way to explain that is. If you've hurt me, I need to show you the weight and the depth of this pain by showing you some pain. 
That's what I call it. So I was going to show him what he had lost and how bad he was going to feel when he saw me with this one particular man that he absolutely hated. Just hated him. They were just enemies. So I manipulated and maneuvered and uh, got with this other guy and and, uh, saw that he had plenty to drink. You know, I always did that. I always griped when they were drunk at the wrong time. But when I needed them to do something, then I would pour them a little bit stronger drink. I'd pour them a couple of drinks quicker than what they normally do. It took me a long time in inventories to to see my part, that I was giving them the poison when it suited me. And I am not proud to say that at all. But I manipulated this and got him drunk one night quicker than normal and took him out to uh, the bloody bucket. Flaunted myself in front of uh, my daughter's daddy and left uh, quickly. And a couple of days later, he took a shotgun and blew this man's head off. Now, I never, ever expected that to happen. Not ever. It just, that happens in movies. It doesn't happen in real life. And I was just um, blown away by it. My friend came. It was real early in the morning. The sun was coming up. And she came and knocked on the door, and she told me what just happened. And I remember standing there thinking, because my chest started getting very tight. My throat started closing. I was having a tough time breathing. And it seemed like the sun was going back down. I was thinking, now, how can the sun be going back down? Where's it going? <clears throat> And this pain was filling me up. And I thought, oh, my God, this pain. And I, I can't stand this. I'm not going to have this uncomfortableness in me. And I just decided at that point to stuff that feeling. It was too tough. And that was my first encounter that I brought up in inventories of me stuffing a feeling. And it went down deep and buried very deep. And I put my shoulders back and I said, that's too bad. And it came out in newspapers and everything, and they were making a big deal out of it. And my parents, well, they were so fed up with me at this point. I I had a child out of wedlock, and then this happened. And I went over to my mother's house, and she said to me, she met me at the door, and she said, I would like for you to leave. I don't want you coming in and out here anymore. I just don't want our neighbors to see you here. And if anybody asks if you're our daughter, please tell them that you're not. She was a big member of the Rebecca Lodge, and they had just, she had been voted this high mucky muck at state. And when all this happened, they asked her to step down uh, because of what I had done. And I felt real bad about that, and I knew she was right. And I said, you're right, Mama, I, I won't, I'll leave. And uh, my dad used to come get my daughter and take her back over there. But my mother, she never laid eyes on me for quite some time, a couple of years. Well, I decided that what was going on with me was just awful, and I had to change. I just absolutely had to change my lifestyle. Now, I, I knew my grandmother believed in God. I did not. I'd seen an article in a, in a magazine that said, uh, God is dead. One of the girls, just side note here, one of the girls, one of my grand sponsorees, uh, four or five months ago, slipped this magazine under my chair at the meeting. She said, Lift, give me a little note. She said, you talked about this first time I ever heard an Al-Anon speaker, and I wanted you to have this magazine. So she got on the Internet and dug out this magazine. It was back in the 40s. It was incredible. I was so thrilled to read it. And I just figured that, you know, and the Bible said they lived a long time back then, so maybe there was somebody and he lived a long time and it was really good, and that's kind of the way I thought it really may have gone down. So I had nothing to turn to. So I, I knew I had to change my lifestyle. So what I did was go up the rodeo grounds. Now, at that time, 
cowboys weren't burning their the flags and tearing up the draft cards and all that and they'd say these are you know these are real men and they're real citizens and I, I thought that made me feel good when they were saying that so I decided I'd get a cowboy that would fix me and I did and you know the difference in the honky tonk and cowboy land is after the rodeo there's a slab of concrete with a fence around it and all the girls lean up against this fence and all the cowboys lean up against that fence it's the only difference and they, they played sleep and uh, I picked out the bull rider, the best bull rider of the bunch, and um, positioned myself where he would see me. I, I heard this girl, this alcoholic woman, speak just not too long ago. It just absolutely tickled me to death. She said, and I never had a, such a good idea. I'm sorry I didn't think about it. When she was at the bars, she would see where the men's restroom was. And she would find the table and set herself right in front of the door. So when they opened the door, the light from the bathroom would fall on her. She'd be sitting there. <laughs> that is such a great idea. <laughs> so we went round and round and did the deal. And uh, one night he was drinking and we was out that honky-tonk and he was poking me in the chest and I picked up a quart beer bottle. It was empty. and Broke it upside his head. Just... Busted up. I'd done that several times. I, I don't know why I did things like that. You made me mad. I just busted in the head with a chair or something. And he just went to his knees, and I thought it would be a good time to exit. And I did, and he chased me out the car, and he spun me around, and he got me by the shoulder, and I thought, boy, he is fixing to knock me cold turkey. And he said, I think you just knocked some sense in me. I think we should get married. <laughs> Well, he had a quart bottle of salted, no, a gallon jug that he mixed salted on. I filled it up that night, and it stayed full till we was married. Two, three days later, as soon as I could get him married, uh, and he didn't draw a sober breath, I was afraid he'd change his mind. And then do you understand I was married? Now, this was something that was not a dream that I even entertained at all, because good girls get married, and I was not a good girl. And I was married. Now, this is going to be it. Life's going to be done. This is it. And I, I did all the things that wife's supposed to do. I cooked him you know, breakfast and made him little sandwiches and put little love notes in the sandwich. And so when he took a bite of it, the boys would say, Oh, you got such a good life. And I had him supper ready, his bath drawn. And I mean, it was, I, was just, I was an excellent wife. And we had an excellent marriage for six days. And and then he was off and running, and he didn't come home for a couple of days, and then it started. You know, it was all back. It was all back. I had, you know, loser up here, loser, loser. And, and I, I took my position at the window and, and watching, you know. I, you were talking about loneliness, Don. I, you know, loneliness just, I think it's all over alcoholism, whether it be the alcoholic or whether it be the family. It's just a nasty time. And I'd be saying that that went to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning listening because his, his pickup had a certain ding-dang, ding-dang. You know, I could hear it five miles down the road. And I'd watch for that pickup and, and listen for that pickup. And, and just my life was waiting on pickup most of the time. I'd look up down the street and everybody else's lights were off. The cars were in the driveway. The pickup was out front. 
and standing there thinking, what in the world is wrong with me? Why am I unlovable? What is it? I don't understand. Everybody else can seem to do it, and I just can't. I don't know what the deal is. And uh, he'd come in, and, of course, I'd run, jump in bed, and cling to the side of the bed like I was asleep. Learn how to breathe just like you're sleeping. He'd say, you sleep? I wouldn't say anything. Are you mad? <sighs> no. You know, just hurt. And then, then we'd go. You know, then we'd go at it. And it was the same, I mean, the same thing all the time. Uh, we'd either fight a little bit or fight large or you'd start breaking windows, throwing furniture, screaming, yelling, throwing me out the door, throwing him out the door. And my children, you know, God love them. Uh, I think Jennifer touched me so much because she was thrown out of the house. My kids were thrown out of the house. And, and Daddy screamed and yelled and broke things of theirs and broke things of mine. And It's just it's a nasty disease. I love alcoholics, but I absolutely detest alcoholism. I hate it. And that's why I have to stay here and work as hard as I do to separate the two. Because I love the alcoholic and I hate the disease. And, and I did that just as long as I could possibly do it. And the beatings were going, you know, if he didn't start a, a fight, I did. And, and I, I was beat up all the time. And the children had to watch that. And it was just, it was, it was very, very sick, as you can well imagine. One Thursday, I woke up, and I had two black eyes and a busted lip, and um, he was going to come in the next day. He was working out of town. He was going to come in the next day, and I knew I just couldn't do it. I could not do it one more time. I, those kids were in the back room, and I would just think about those kids. You know, they both got different daddies, and by this time, time my daughter's uh, father, he was in prison for that murder. My son had this drunk for a daddy that beat us all up, and uh, they were back there hiding. And they weren't particularly hiding from the alcoholic either. They had to hide a lot from me because I would go absolutely crazy. And you can't, you can't grab the disease. You can't grab the alcoholic when he's out the honky-tonk. But you can grab those kids, and you can scream at those kids. And my kids suffered a lot under my hand, I'll tell you. And I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. And so I, I picked up the yellow pages, and the reason I did that in the fall of 68, I think it was October, November, and Landers had a letter in there from a woman who was asking what to do about a drunk husband. And I could have written that letter. And she told her, I thought, she said to uh, call Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that's what I did. And uh, this man gave me another number. I called it and went over to this woman's house. And she and her husband sat and talked to me for a long, long time. And then they took me, they made arrangements too, and picked me up and took me to my first meeting. My very first impression of Alcoholics Anonymous and al He opened the door to the clubhouse, and he opened it and, and stepped back and, and looked at me. And I was looking at him because I really didn't know what he was doing. I wondered why he didn't go on in. And he was being a gentleman. Now, I had not encountered a, a gentleman in my whole life. Nobody had ever opened the door for me, so I wasn't quite sure, other than seeing it in movies, what was going on. And then he finally said, please, and just kind of bowed. And it dawned on me, he's opened this door. And I walked in the door, and it was a long coffee room. And at the end of the coffee room was a cigarette machine. Y'all remember those old machines where you put the money in and pull the thing, and it fall out? And each little company had their advertising on, on there. It's all different kind of lights and colors, and it was really a pretty glow. And the guys were leaning against that machine, and that glow was coming up in their face, and they were laughing. 
And I can still see it and hear it right this moment. They were laughing a real, real belly laugh. And it was real. And I just stopped because I hadn't heard that in so long. You know, laughter leaves the alcoholic home. I love what Albert used to say. This little, he was an Alateen sponsor, and one of the Alateens got in the car one night, and Albert says, well, son, how's it going? He said, well, the house sounds okay. He said, sounds? What do you mean? He started talking about the sounds of alcoholism. If it's quiet, it's an it's a okay time. But if it's noisy, then it's not a good old time. And how his dad's voice, and I thought, yeah, that's right. The sounds of alcoholism is a strange sound. I went into that Al-Anon meeting, and I, I can't tell you what they said. I have no idea what they said. Uh, I get so tickled that people who, who say from time to time, I just talked to a girl the other day, and so I said, oh, crap, you don't remember what it was like when you was new. She'd say, well, if that was going on when I was a newcomer, I would just left. No, you wouldn't. You don't even remember what was going on when you was a newcomer. Quit saying that. You know, I mean, nobody knows what's going on when they first get here. But if I was new, I'd leave. <laughs> I just remember how I felt when I left there. That's what caught me. And whatever I felt, I knew I wanted some more of it. And I, and I kept going back. And sometime later, I was given this book uh, from, uh, called The Prophet by Cahill Gibran. And it's, there's a line there that says, uh, say not that God is in your heart, but that you are in the heart of God. And I thought, that's it. That describes what happened to me. I stepped into that room, and there's a spirit that's in every meeting that I've ever been to. Sometimes I'm too tired to really experience it, but it's always there. Ramona, one of the old-time Al-Anon speakers from Oklahoma, she said all the time, if you'll just be still in a, in a meeting sometime, just just." Just be still. You will feel the spirit. She was an Indian too, and she talked about God's spirit, the Creator's spirit going from one heart to the other and how it just pulled everybody together. And and, and I believe that's true. And like I said, the only time I don't feel it is when I'm tired or blaming somebody. Um, And I knew I wanted to come back, and I did. I I would go in there real quick and and leave real quick. What time did we start? I have no idea. Does anybody know? Thank you. Okay. Um, and now I forgot where I was. What? Oh, yeah, spirit. And <laughs> somebody's listening. Thank you. <laughs> I figure most of you are asleep. I'm just having a good time up here all by myself. <laughs> and I, I would listen to what they were saying, and I figured out pretty soon that they were getting too intimate for me. I figured out that they talked about God, and I didn't want any part of God. And then I started, I heard, you know, just take what you like and leave the rest. And so I would slip in just the minute the meeting started. I mean, it just, they just said, let's start. And I'd slip in that back door and set the back seat. And as soon as amen, I was out of there. Mainly because everybody looked like y'all did tonight. Clear eyes. You know, those that eyes of recovery and the... And the laughter and the joy was there, and, and I just knew that I didn't fit there, but I wanted to be back there and just observe you. If I could just sit back there and observe you, uh, that would be enough for me. So I would just slip in and out, and they were watching me. They knew I was new, and I never could figure out how they knew I was new for quite some time. <laughs> and it was two doors to that room, and one got at one door and one got at the other door before they started the Lord's Prayer. 
until they could catch me because I'd been there long enough now that they need to set the book. And the door that I chose that night, my soon-to-be sponsor was standing there, and she caught me. And she said, she was telling me a few little things about herself that she said she was surprised that she was telling them as they were coming out of her mouth because it was stuff that she didn't share. And now I know why she did that. It was a divine appointment. I believe in divine appointments here. I believe God's timing is perfect. It's never a minute or a second too quick or too late. Because if she hadn't said those things, I never would have approached her. Because she looked so sweet. I'm pretty sure she never had said shit in her whole life, you know. <laughs> and she said some things to me that I knew it would be safe to talk to her. And the next day she showed up at where I worked. I worked in a drugstore, and, and she'd come out there, and, and she slipped a $10 bill in my hand. Now, that was a lot of money back then. A lot of money. And I hadn't told anybody anything about my finances. There was no money and there was no food at home. And the alcoholic had been gone for a while. And I didn't know where he was. And I tapped out my boss just as mad as much as I could. You know how people start looking at you after a while when you borrow money and you come in with black eyes and you've got all this makeup on and, and they say, why don't you stay there? And I always said, well, I'm leaving as soon as. As soon as those kids, I've gone. As soon as the car is paid, I'm out of here. As soon as I get some money saved up, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as. Now, I didn't have any more idea than they did why I stayed. I had no idea. So I didn't want to ask my boss, and I was really worried about actually having supper that night for my children and gas to get back and forth to work. Uh, there was just nobody to ask anymore. My friends were gone. I had two friends left, and they were really shaky. No family left. I mean, I was literally by myself with this disease. And when she handed me that $10 bill, I mean, I was just just shocked. And I said, oh, I'll pay you back. And she said, no, no, you don't. The way we do it here is that you pass that on, and God will bless you, and he will, pay, he will multiply it. And that was 32 years ago. And I've been passing that 10 bucks because, I mean, I just worried about it. And there was pretty soon that I had some money, and, there was a gal who needed some money, and I just gave her some $10. I said, pass it on. Don't give it back to me. And, uh, I wanted out of my... And she moved to Phoenix shortly after, and then she sent me a card and sent me that $10 back. Oh, man. Uh, it was like my sponsor had said, pass it on. So this guy was going to rehab, so I gave him $10 for while he was in rehab. And three or four months later, he gave me that $10 back. It's like, what am I... And it was like, ooh. You know, it just... I just felt so guilty every time it came my way. Started multiplying. The first time it multiplied, it was forty dollars. I'd given away four times, and all of a sudden, forty dollars passed my hand. And, and I knew when I got that forty dollars from an unexpected source that it was that ten dollars being multiplied. So I give it away and I give it away. And the last time that it came back to me, uh, it was in the form of thirty-three thousand dollars. And it was an accumulation of several months that it happened, but I knew when every thing came in that that's what it was. I uh, went to those meetings and this cowboy, I finally told him where I was going because uh, he was out of town most of the time when I was doing this. And I finally told him where I was going and why. And, and he didn't know what I was talking about, literally. And then shortly thereafter, he started noticing some changes in me and they told me that he would. And he started getting a little nasty about me going and pretty soon he was trying to stop me from going and pretty soon we were in fights over it and and I mean again this 
terrible violence that happens in alcoholism. He would scream and yell and threaten me and and try to keep me from going to meetings. And after I'd been there for a year, he came and he got sober for six months. And then after six months, he went to our first convention. He heard a lot of speakers, great caliber speakers. And he, when we got home, he decided he wasn't really, really an alcoholic and he went back to drinking. And he drank for the next 26 years. I stayed with him for seven years and I was getting better all this time and he was getting worse. And the violence stopped the minute I come into this program and listening to what y'all told me to do and I did everything you told me to do. I never, oh, I did balk, but I didn't let you know I balked. I just did it. And uh, he came in one night after seven years and started beating me up. And as I fell over the, the foot of the bed, and this had just been a matter of seconds, I looked up and in the door was my children. And they were just dancing a little jig and screaming. And my son was, Daddy, please don't hit her anymore. Please don't. He's just a little bitty thing. And I, it was like scales fell from my eyes. I saw my kids for the very first time ever. And I looked at them and I thought, my God, they know. And they got in here so quick. They're hurting. Look at their faces. And I swear to you, it was the first time that it occurred to me that those kids were hurting because of all this. Seven years later. Tell you what a hot shot speaker you got tonight. I'm so dumb and slow, you know. It's like, ah, seven years. And I got those kids and we escaped. Now I'm a high school dropout. I have absolutely no education and I don't I can't support these kids by myself and I don't know what to do. <clears throat> and I go to my sponsor and and we pray. And she's a praying woman. I mean she just used to embarrass me down. I mean, she'd pray in front of people. It's like <laughs> And I was always so embarrassed for her. And, and oh. But drop a hat, she'd pray. So should we just hit our knees and pray about what I was supposed to do? And absolutely, the next thing I knew, it just unfolded right before my eyes. I became a nurse. Now, I never dreamed about it being a nurse. I never wanted to be a nurse. I didn't care about it being a nurse. I'd get car sick, and I kept thinking bedpans. Oh, man. And next thing I knew, I was enrolled in nursing school. And it was absolutely awesome. I mean, I was the top of my class. And I always thought I was so dumb. I always thought I was stupid, dumb, couldn't learn. And I graduated and I, top of my class. We had a big graduation ceremony and they'd asked me to give the class response. And, and I got up and was uh, thanking this huge crowd. Most of them was my people. You know, this whole front section was all the... AAs and Alan on in my little group and my sponsor had moved down to Austin and she flew in to surprise me to be at the graduation and right in the middle of all them was my mama and my daddy and they were looking up at me and, and my daddy was crying and my next door neighbor was next to him and I'll never forget this uh, I looked down and I was thanking the families for staying with us and helping us and my daddy turned around to the next door neighbor and he pointed his finger and he said that's my kid up there and I'll just never forget you know, and they had been so ashamed of me, and Mother was crying, and it was great. And God took that. It's been, oh, every speaker, I think, has mentioned, every time there's this black hole in our life, God can turn that around and make something good of it and, and make it a blessing. And, and my nursing skills became a blessing because my dad died of cancer, and I was the one that was able to take care of him and give him the dignity that he needed to die. And he died a wonderful, precious little death. And I started working, and... Uh, in this nursing home. I was a director of nurses, so I could set up these things. Uh, there was people on welfare there, 
And I knew how they felt because to get through school, I had to go through I had to go through welfare and I had to go Texas rehab. And a bunch of the men got together and gave me. Each one was responsible for $100, and they gave me $1,000, which was a lot of money back then, to get through school. And I would just carry it through school. And, and uh, I knew what it was like to be on welfare and take food stamps. And, and I just I wanted their dignity upheld. And so I, I created a system in our little area that you would not know who was on welfare and who wasn't so that everybody was treated equal because you could see the difference in the treatment they received. And the, the people who come in and inspect that stuff, saw my system and they liked it and they picked it up and it went all over the state of Texas. And it's because one person was humiliated or thought she was by being on welfare. And God can take it and make it something beautiful. I was able to uh, use my nursing skills many, many times for my family and make make those living amends. I did go to my parents, needless to say, and, and face-to-face and cleaned up all that stuff. And it took my mom a long time to forgive me, let me tell you. She just didn't jump in my arms. But I was told and, and did go by there every every Saturday for at least 10 minutes. And then I made it 15. And then pretty soon I was invited for supper. And pretty soon the kids and I went. And then we, we went back in good graces with my family. All except my one brother. I had a brother named Jimmy who, uh, he didn't speak to me for 26 years. He did not speak to me once. And he would totally ignore me. He'd be in the room where I was at. He'd walk right past me. He wouldn't look at me. Uh, my children weren't welcome in his home. When my dad died, my mother went off to uh, Austin. Uh, my brother, my other two brothers went to Austin. We were not invited, and it was left. Me and my children were left there. My dad died in November, just a few weeks before Christmas. Mother said, "I'm sorry, I just can't stay here." And I said, "I understand that." And it was just me and my two kids. And man, I mean, it was a miserable time. And uh, I, I was invited to so many AA families' homes that Christmas. I, re- I remember I had so many invitations, I couldn't fulfill them, but I, I just stayed at home. And Christmas Eve, about 10, I mean, bang, 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 and went to the door, and here was my drunk ex-husband by this time. And the kids were just so excited to see him, and we all were. And he was so drunk, and he came in, and I was pleased to see him. Um, very pleased. Uh, my kids were excited, and it was just a peace that came over me that we could share this because I, I thought, my God, he hadn't had anybody in years and I hadn't even thought about him at all uh, being alone at Christmas. And so he came in and we shared Christmas and it was pretty pretty neat. And I started working in this uh, business and I was just fulfilled and, and had a lot of self-worth and I was doing really great. And, and my daughter started quacking. They say that only an alcoholic can call them themselves an alcoholic. Uh, but I heard a man from the podium say, if uh, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and waddles like a duck, chances are it's a duck. And if you're looking at an alcoholic who's waddling and quacking, probably an alcoholic. And I looked at my daughter, and she's quacking a lot. So we started having those visits and pulling her out of cars and making her stay at home and grounding her. You know, grounding is just a fun thing, isn't it? <laughs> You're grounded. And that's, she could go through walls. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I could stand at her door with a pistol and she'd still get out of that room. I never had figured out how she did that. And we fought a lot. And uh, it just wound up I hated her and she hated me. I just, the phone rang and I just, I just didn't want to answer it. And, and it was difficult. And she ran away from home when she was uh, in, in high school and I was glad she was gone. It was just so heavy on me. I just couldn't take it. I mean, 
you just I just fought it and I fought it and I fought it and I tried and tried and tried to make something out of it and I just it was just too tough. It was tougher than I was. And then if you flip it over at that time at night when you're all by yourself and I'm thinking I feel the guilt of the world. You know, if I hadn't stayed with him, if I'd left here, if I'd have done this, if I hadn't done that, blah blah blah. I was the Alteen sponsor for a few years and they were going around the room one night talking and this one kid held his hand up and he said I just hate my mama. The only thing that was wrong with my daddy is he's drunk, and she made him leave. He just drank. He didn't. He just drunk. That's all. And she made him leave. And I thought, oh my God, that's what I did. And then two or three other come around. This kid says, I just hate my mama. My daddy's drunk all over the house, and she won't make him leave. And I thought, isn't this interesting? There is no answer. There is no answer. This is the disease we all live in it, and it's just Saturday. And I'm going to do the best I can Saturday. And uh, these kids just broke my heart. And, and so she left and she was on her way. And, and my son, they called me from school. He was uh, 11 years old. And they had caught him in a closet with a couple of guys. And they were sniffing Pam, you know, that spraying stuff, through a paper towel holder. Pam, for God's sakes. I mean, I can smell whiskey and I can understand beer, but... Pam. And I scooped him up and went straight to the doctor and got him all checked out and was coming back home and got him there and said the you know, asked the question that any good Alanon would say, Son, why did you do that? And he looked up at me and he said, Mama, I like the way it makes me feel. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> oh no. So I knew what I had to do. I was not do you hear me? I was not going to have this child be an alcoholic. <laughs> Michelle, I was going to do something different this time. And I was going to nip this in the bud and it wasn't going to happen. He was just not going to do it. And so I got with some people in the program and we were going to put him in a boys ranch in San Angelo, Texas. And I was going to move down there and he was going to be put away with some guidance and some men and it was going to be great. And I was in the process of getting that done, and this drunk daddy came and kidnapped him one night, and, and I didn't know where he was for a couple of days, and had the sheriffs out looking for him. Was fixed to put his picture on the milk carton, and he called one night. He said, "Mama, I'm okay. I'm with my daddy, and this is where I really want to be. I'm not coming home." And I was just devastated after all I had done for these children, and them turn on me like that and go with that drunk. And I was just, oh. And then the guilt sets in. And I went to my sponsor, and I was a mess, of course. And she wanted me to write an inventory on my motherhood, which I did. And in that inventory, I, I realized a couple of things that were just marvelous. Number one, God has no grandchildren. He just doesn't. He loves those kids the exact same depth that he does me. And that all of us live in the disease of alcoholism. I had alcoholism. They were probably both alcoholics. Their daddy was both daddies were alcoholics. And there's just no blame in that stuff. That's just the way it is. And everybody did the very best they could on any given day. And then I realized some things that I really did do good as a mother. There was things that I did do for those kids. And I tried to protect them from alcoholism. And I did feed them and I did bathe them and I did see that they got to school. And I, and I had to weigh this stuff out. And I had to forgive myself for being who and what I am. The big book says an alcoholic has to concede in their innermost, innermost self that they are an alcoholic. 
And at that time, I conceded in my innermost self that I was now alone. I had this disease and that it spewed over on my children. And we were all very sick and we were doing the best we could do. She said for me to go into prayer and meditation and put these kids in God's hands. She said, think of some place that you really feel good that y'all were at. And we had started going to church by this time. And one Sunday we went down, there was a kneeling rail, and you, and you knelt, and the, the elders of the church came and, and prayed for you, whatever your request was. And this Sunday I was in the middle, and both the kids were on the side of me, and we were holding hands, and we were praying for the daddy's sobriety. And I remember that day how warm and good I felt and how the kids, they smiled when we got through. So in my prayer meditation, I took them down to that rail and put their hands together and I stepped off and left them in God's hands. And what that did to me, what my sponsor said it would do, it would take the worry away about my children. Not necessarily the concern because I'd always be concerned about my children, but it would take the worry away. And it did. I felt much, much at peace with that, that they had their path and I could not get on their path. They have a path, I have a path. If I have to get down on mine and get on their path, one of us is going to get knocked off. And so just let them go on their path and we stay on mine. And I can do that only one day at a time. And I'm a spring jumper, so I can jump over there anytime. I was alone and these two kids were doing what they were doing and I conceded that my son was going to live with his dad. That's where he wanted to be. My daughter was off doing her deal and, and I was kind of enjoying it, to tell you the truth. And, um, spending money on myself and going to conventions and having a good time with my AA family. And I met this man from California. His name was Jim Shaw. And he was the cutest thing I ever seen. He had big old blue eyes and gray hair. And he was so distinguished looking and he had lots of diamonds. And that really got my attention. And uh, we started having a long distance relationship and we decided that I would move out to California and uh, get a place and we'd see if we could put a marriage together. So I quit my job, put all my stuff that I was going to keep in a U-Haul trailer and gave the rest of it away and went off to speak at a convention and told them how joyful God was if you just follow the path, see what happens to you. And the rewards I was getting and I was going off to California. And, da, 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 da. and I got home and he was waiting at the plane for me in Lubbock. He'd flown in from California and he said he'd gotten in touch with his feelings. Oh, please. And then he couldn't go through with it. And after much examining and talking about it a long time later, he was just a coward. And if you're single, girls, if you've got an alcoholic on tow, let me tell you, they are the biggest scaredy cats in this whole wide world. Just don't pay attention to them. Just keep shoving and pushing and you'll get them. I mean, they, I don't mean to offend you alcoholics, but y'all are cowards. I'm sorry. So I had some actions right after that that I really, really, really would not ever tell you if my sponsor didn't tell me to. I would never tell you this. I want you all to think I'm a spiritual giant. <laughs> um, I was so angry at God, not at Jim, but at God, because I had been, you know, why did he lay something this beautiful out in front of me and then yank it away? What's the deal? I had done everything y'all said to do. I made the coffee. I set up the chairs. I took commitments. I sponsored people. I was sponsored. I was the GR, for God's sake. And if you go that far, I mean, you've really gone the, all, the whole schmoo. And this is what I was getting. You know, and people say the same thing. Well, that's another learning experience. Well, crap, I'm as smart as I want to be. <laughs> and 
God loves you, and there's da da da, and blah blah blah, and you know I just want to go, you know, just full of anger, and it wasn't at them, and it wasn't at Jim, and it was at God, and just what's the deal? I mean, just blamed him for everything, and in my head to get back at him was to hurt, 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 hurt. See, because I'm vindictive, and I want you to know how bad you've hurt me. So I went and got some of his kids and really tried to screw them up real good. I get some, I got some newcomer alcoholics who were trying to get sober, and I just took them off to my house. And, you know, I'm just so ashamed of that that I don't know what to do. It still hurts me because one of them never came back. And, and you know, 13th stepping, this is no place for 13th stepping because we're people's lives depend on us. And I, one of them snitched to my sponsor. He was a in-and-out guy, in-and-out guy, so he knew my sponsor. And, and so he told her that this other guy was, and it was like snitch, snitch, snitch. But I got in trouble. And... Uh, she sat me down and started talking to me, and then she made me go tell her husband, Jack, which I had rather do anything than go tell Jack what I've been doing because Jack was my hero. He was just everything to me. So I told him what I had done, and, and he really looked at me with complete disdain. He said, no, tall gal, we don't do that here. Lives. He said, if you're going to mess around like that, go outside of AA because lives are saved here. We don't 13th step here. It's not the place. And you'll never be a winner if you do that. And all you're going to do is hurt other people. And I hurt him. And I have not ever even thought about it since then. You know, your sobriety and my serenity is much more important to me than, you know, rolling the hay, let me tell you. And I can't fix anything. Trying to use you is my fix. It just doesn't work. So I started praying and I wrote an inventory on it. My sponsor always gives me assignments and I wrote this inventory and I was coming back from a conference just a few weeks after that and it was driving and it was Sunday afternoon and it was so clear to me as a bell God had given me I'd already had everything anybody wants God had given me a home children love laughter life a, a way out He'd given me everything and I didn't need anything else ever in my life if I never ever had another man in my life I was overpaid and I just felt this tremendous gratitude and all I want to do is go back to my meeting and set up the chairs because a lot of people in that meeting that are very unhappy with me and my shenanigans, I'll tell you, as they should have been. If you ever should have been asked to leave the program, I should have been asked to leave because I was hurting a lot of people. And all I want to do is just go back there and just let me, just let me sit here and just let me be a part of it. And I'll tell you, I have not changed that attitude to this day. If you'll just let me do whatever I can do, I really, really want to do it because my life, I'm so overpaid, it's unbelievable. And I'm so glad God gives mercy, not justice. And I walked through this, and about the time I did, Jim Shaw came back into my life, of course. You know, God's such a good God. He had lessons to learn, and I had, and he put us back together. And we got married, and uh, we were going to be Mr. and Miss Al-Anon. I'd seen y'all come in, you know, you couples, you'd come in, you're just so cute, and y'all'd leave, you're just so cute. I just thought that way every couple was. I didn't know what happened in the car on the way to and the way from. <laughs> and we had to hammer out a good marriage, and we did. We were married and lived in Oklahoma, where he's from, and uh, he had a lot of money. I was rich for about 30 minutes, and I loved it. And uh, the all bus came, and we lost everything. We moved to Dallas for a while, and we went back out to California. Clancy was his sponsor and told him to come back. And so we went back out to California. In the meantime, my daughter had called. She had tried to commit suicide, and she was drunk, and uh, I left her be. I would had enough, enough of y'all helping me to know that she needed to be left alone. A few short months after that, I went back to Lubbock, my hometown, as I 
did at that time every year for homecoming and she came to meet me to see spend a little time with me and she sat in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and when they asked for newcomers she raised her hand and she got 10 years of sobriety and it was absolutely marvelous I was so absolutely thrilled at the same time a couple of months later Jim's daughter uh, showed up here um, she had been out there on the streets and bad drunk she had a child out of wedlock a little cute little boy and she came back and we helped raise that boy for a couple of years and she is in AA and she's doing extremely well and my daughter met another young man on AA campus and they uh, they got pregnant they got married they had baby they got divorced me and Jim got they and uh, uh, I loved what Polly said and I, and I agree 100% you know I was a lousy mom but oh I'm a great grandma I'm a great grandma Jim was a great grandpa I just loved to watch him with those kids he went to school and he would take pumpkins and carve them out at pumpkin time for my granddaughter and the kids and he would dress up in a Santa Claus suit and go down there at Christmas and he would we even got him an Easter costume and he went down Easter he was the cutest he, he was short and fat he was the cutest thing you saw and he loved his grandkids and he did that for all the grandkids and, and it was a sweet time and Tracy had uh, 10 years of sobriety and we gave her a great big huge party and I found out right before that that she sent this little girl back to the daddy to, to live and he lived and uh, still does in Vermont and we were in California at this time, and I was just devastated. We were such a part of, of my granddaughter's life. And then right after that, she tried to commit suicide sober. And she was doing all the things, all the things. But she was in one of those periods, I think Don said it so wonderful today. I, I just got to listen to your tape a thousand times. You said so much stuff that my head just swam with it. You were just magnificent. And your heritage touched my heritage that I know nothing about. And it was real, I was so impressed. But the seasons, I think she was in one of those seasons and didn't realize it was just a season. And she tried to kill herself. And shortly after that, of course, she drank. She got two and a half years sober again. She had 90 days the second time. And I got a call from my son and the, my cowboy husband had put his hand in a machine and nearly cut it off, or his arm rather, and nearly bled to death. And they had stuck him in a hospital. And he was living in a warehouse on a cot for this man just watching his warehouse and the man would give him enough whiskey to keep him alive and that's, that was his life and uh, he was going to die and uh, Jim said why don't you go back and twelve step your dad and, and gave her money for a ticket she went back and twelve step the little cowboy and, and, and uh, it took 26 years later he got sober uh, he had four years of sobriety and he died last January and uh, me and my kids went back and, and buried this man and it was like I made amends. I, he had the cutest little funeral you ever saw. I went and got an old antique box because he did not. He just didn't go in a chrome box. We put a put him in a pine box, and I went and got some hay and decorated the hay and got his rope and made some little cute. He was just the cutest little funeral. I was so proud. <laughs> and all the cowboys come and say, "Would you do my funeral? That's what I want." And me and my kids, we all wore the little red bandanas. We all dressed in black, and we had uh, his favorite cowboy songs. And it was, I mean, me and my children buried their dad, and it was like making amends, the whole family. And it was just, it was a really precious time. It truly was. But anyway, she uh, got sober. She was sober two and a half years. And she called me one night. She had moved over to Phoenix, and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, What? You know, are you sitting down? An alcoholic calls you at 10 o'clock at night. Are you sitting down to leave? You know, 
this ain't going to be a good conversation. She said, I just ran off to Las Vegas and got married. I said, to who? And she wasn't even dating anybody that I knew. Well, she met this lovely cowboy when we were home for Christmas. They talked to each other on the phone and saw each other twice, and they ran off and got married. And, of course, he was still drinking. But he was going to go AA. And I said, oh, well, good. Um, are y'all going to live there in Phoenix or go to Texas or what? She said, well, we got to hurry up and get back to Texas before his parole officer finds out he's out of state. <laughs> So I was endeared to my son-in-law right off the bat. And, uh, and I was going to talk in Dallas, Texas. Polly was there. And she called me. My daughter called me. And she said, uh, we were talking at, what was it, an anniversary, I guess. And she said, Mom, I'm going to be up there in Dallas this weekend. And I just need to tell you uh, something to prepare yourself. She said, I just got out of the emergency room. I've been there all night. I've been drunk. And I've been beat up. And I look pretty bad. And I said, thank you, and I'll see you. And I just hung up. And I'm so glad that I've been trained to do what I do. And it, pick up the phone as soon as you get it down and call your sponsor. I mean, that's all I know to do because I'm not smart enough to make decisions. And I called my sponsor, and she told me some things to do. And, you know, right immediately the guilt just pours all over me. I just do that. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. I'm going home, and I'm going to get me a bracelet, and it's going to say pause on it. We've been all over us, a bunch of us were a while ago, pausing. And uh, I, I think that's so cool. And I really hated to see her. I just hated to see her. I just saw myself, but I absolutely had to release her to whatever she had to do. And she's sober again. One of the guys in our group uh, busted her. He said, I know what you've been doing, blah, 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 the Ben Show. And he's her sponsor now, and she's got two years of sobriety again. Vince and I went down to San Diego where she is now. She travels a lot. And uh, we gave her a two-year chip the other night, and she just, it's different. You know, that there's the eyes are there, the recovery's there, and it, it's just incredible. Uh, four years ago, Jim and I were doing so well in California. Uh, we bought a home in Palm Springs. It was paid for. We were going to retire out there. And I had knee surgery, so I was out there recuperating and and he came out there, he was going to start a second little business and give this business to our business manager and, and foreman. And we were, going to be, we were just set for life. It was great. And uh, he got hurt one night in his shoulder and uh, took him to the emergency room and they took x-rays. He had cancer and he was dead in three months. And I, it was just, of course, needless to say, I was just so shocked. And that last week when I was trying to get some information from the business manager, uh, discovered that we'd been embezzled and that I had nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And one of the last memories of my husband that I had was him on the telephone begging this young woman to give me the computer and, and help me get this thing straightened up. He was just begging her. And, and I, you know, I just never will forget that. It's still in my heart. It still hurts. And I hope I never see her again because I don't know what I'll do. I think I'd take the bracelet off and throw it. Um, and I found myself in just, you know, uh, a mess. And I went to see Clancy and laid it all out in front of him. And he said, you know, I don't ever tell anybody to file bankruptcy because we always work our way out of it. He said, but I don't see that you have any choice. And so he called uh, a guy that he sponsored who's an attorney. Many of you know him, Clint Hodges, and he helped me, and, and I got uh, bankruptcy done. And I'll tell you, that hurt me just as much, if not 
not more uh, than Jim Dine because his word, his honesty in this fellowship was something he wore with honor and he worked real hard at it. And I felt so bad. But there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. But one more time, you take those things and you change them. And I, I help women that I sponsor now. You know what's going on. You know everything. He had three different insurance policies, and they were all accidental. I guess he thought he was going to live forever. And so I had no insurance. I lost my house. I lost everything. And in that period of time is when I got that $33,000. Uh, people from all over sent money. And it's like Polly mentioned this morning. When one of us is wounded, I mean, y'all just gathered me up. You paid for my husband's funeral, and uh, you helped me move. You helped me uh, keep that house for six months. And God, you just did everything in the world for me, and, and my life is yours. You know, whatever you need, uh, it's yours. I'll never forget the loneliness that I felt, how scared I was. And y'all never left me alone for months, for months. You were with me every moment, carried me, and it was just an incredible time. Uh, three months later, I got uh, a message that my nephew was drunk out on the oil rig out of Houston and got crushed to death. And we went down and did that funeral. And then a few months later, my stepdad of uh, 20 years died. And three months after that, my mama died. I had 11 deaths in, uh, excuse me, four deaths in 11 months. And then we closed down my mama's house of 35 years, and it was gone in three weeks. We, I mean, gone. Sold everything. And I went back to California. I was standing there. I was like, my God, what happened? What just happened here? It was awful. I moved into a room and uh, with a girl, and I stayed in that room for a couple of years. And then I was given a gift of uh, an apartment for a year. And I just, I've had that apartment for a year, and I just, that year was just up. And uh, it was like, okay, God, it's me and you. It's been me and you. The year's up. And I don't know. I just didn't make enough. I just got this little part-time job nearly um, to live. And I I didn't know where I was going to go. And uh, another friend owns a house in L.A. And she's in in AA. And she's in New York teaching. And she's going to be there for several years. My friend Rita was taking care of the house for her and and just paying minimal the, the mortgage that's like, 30 years old, so it's nothing, especially for California. It is nothing. Rita's engaged, so she's going to move out of this house, and Diane and Rita said, do you want this house? It's a house. It's a two-bedroom house. And it happened to come available just as my apartment I was losing. It just so happened. And I said, well, that's great, but I don't make enough money to do it. And then I thought, well, God's done everything else. I'm just going to step out on faith. So I just took it and started moving in. About that time, it just so happens that my company in Los Angeles shut the doors and the, Calif- I mean the Chicago company took it over. They have a whole different policy and that I got more money, uh, more commission, more expenses. It's just the exact amount of money to take care of this house and this home. They just all happened at the same time. Isn't that something? I mean, God takes care of me if I just let it happen. And it's the most incredible thing. He's taken care of me ever since Jim died. I just thought I was going to, you know, be walking, pushing a basket on the seashore out there. Jim taught me how so many wonderful things. I, I just loved him. My sponsor had me do uh, uh, two papers the other day. Uh, one of them was uh, Broken Relationships, and the other was uh, Five Heroes. And Jim was on there as one of my heroes because he was so dedicated and so so much in love with life. He just loved alcoholics better than anybody ever saw him. 
And he just had fun when he was dying. He really did. I mean, they made jokes, and we, we set out Palm Springs, and they were sneaking him out the back door to play golf because I wouldn't let him go like a little kid. And they were sneaking, going, you know, by the house. And it was just an incredible time. And uh, he said to me and to other people, he said, you know, we live here by these steps. And the 11th step says that we ask the knowledge for his will and the power to carry it out. And he said, I guess his will for me right now is going to heaven, and he's giving me the power to do it. And he said, don't you worry. It's going to be all right. And one night I was crying in the middle of the night, and he got up and he came in there, and he said, what are you crying about? And I said, I'm just going to miss you so much. He's crying. And he said, well, you want me to figure out a way to take you with me? <laughs> I'm not going to miss you that much, Jim. <laughs> and it was really sweet. It was a really incredible time. And I know he's in heaven and having a good time up there. One of the guys he's with is one of my other heroes. And I, this is my story that I always close with. It's Bob White. Bob White was a, a giant in Texas. He just was sober forever and just a great man. He, he'd kiss me and right in the mouth. He'd just get them, smack them, call them sugar babes, smack them. You know, just scare them to death. And a big old cowboy. And, and uh, we started a conference at his insistence called the Canyon Conference. It's in Oklahoma, down in a canyon. And he was the first Sunday morning speaker. And it came to be his last talk because right shortly thereafter he had cancer and I was able to go and take care of him when he was dying. But this morning he said, you know, we close every meeting with the Lord's Prayer and it starts off with our Father and there's a part in there that says the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So if it's, any school kid would know if there's a Father and it's a King, that makes you and I a child of the King. So we are royalty. We are prince and princess. He said, so claim your heritage and use the power which is in this room. The glory, of course, is God's. And he said, be who you are. And as he was saying that, I thought, you know, I am going to claim that. I am. I always had trouble with my self-worth, and this is it. I know who I am. I am Princess Benoit, and I'm a child of the King. And that's the heritage that you have given me. You're my family, and thank you so much for my life.